You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Good morning, and it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, those of you here in person and those of you online, uh, just glad to be with you. I especially say I'm glad to be with you because I've only been here two months on staff. And I just really want to thank you on behalf of me and on behalf of my wife, Lori, for just the way you guys have welcomed us in, how quickly we feel like this is home, this is our church, and we just thank you uh, for all the ways you've made us feel at home. Now, I hope, like me, throughout this series, you have really enjoyed um, what you've been hearing, that you've been moved by it, uh, it's created just reflection and thought in your life. Hopefully, it's brought some change to all of us. And one thing I've heard again and again is the fact that one thing we all share, we all have in common, is that every one of us are sexually broken people. Uh, there's no room to throw stones. All of us are sexually broken people. And we are all people that have sexual stories. We're all people that those stories in some ways are stories of uh, sometimes desire that is misdirected or unfulfilled. Stories sometimes of hurt and loss. Stories sometimes of betrayal. Stories sometimes of sin and of shame. We all share the fact that we have those stories and that they're broken stories. But this morning, I want to think with you a little bit about, so how do we then as broken people live out this, this thing God's made us to be, sexual beings? How do we live it out well? How do we live it out well as married people, as single people? What does it look like to live out well, even as broken people, uh, our sexuality, how God has made us? What does good sex look like? I want to talk about this morning. Uh, I'm going to begin with marriage and then lead into singleness. Now on these topics, I'm just going to skim the surface. I'm just going to hopefully begin the conversation that I, again, hope will go on and on. Uh, because these are topics I could easily spend days on, and I know you don't want to do that. But I want to start by taking a look at marriage, and we all know the story in Genesis that Adam was alone, and God said that that was the one thing in creation that was not good, was not the way it should be. And God rescued Adam from his aloneness. He solved that problem by creating Eve. And the story tells us that he took the rib from Adam, and I think, again, making the point that unlike any other creature that he has created, he is creating for Adam someone who is like him, someone he can connect to in a unique way, be truly one with, because she is like him, of his very substance. But he also made her unique and different, right? She's like him, but she's not him. She's different than him in many ways. And then he calls them to this thing called oneness, really this reflection of who he is, oneness. It's how they're to live out this not being alone. How to rescue each other from aloneness is to pursue oneness. And then in Genesis 2.24, he gives them kind of their marching orders. These first words that tell us something about how we create oneness. 
He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So again, oneness is not just physically coming together as one flesh. That's part of it. But oneness is also something about a leaving. Something's changing. Loyalties have to change if you're going to form this kind of oneness. That they have to leave this family, which is a good connection. But they have to leave. Something has to change so that this new thing can be formed because this oneness is exclusive and unique. It requires a different kind of commitment than any other relationship you will have. So a leaving has to happen, a shifting of loyalties. Uh, There is a moving towards that's more than just the physical. It says, Adam, you will hold fast to your wife. Uh, Other versions will say that you will unite with. Again, you will be moved towards her. And here it's not just talking about the physical because that comes in a moment. Here it's saying you will unite with her in other ways. Emotionally unite with her. Relationally, spiritually, you will seek to hold fast to her, to turn towards her and move close to her. And then he also says, you will become one flesh. You will physically become one. Another very important part of this oneness that they are called to live in in marriage. Um, There is much that I could say about this pursuit of oneness. And scripture talks about it a lot, about what, what that looks like in marriage. But I love the way that God, really I think the main way that God kind of tries to teach us how to pursue oneness He paints a picture for us. He paints this beautiful picture in poetry to to stir our imagination and our hope for what love between a man and a woman, what oneness between a husband and wife can look like. And that's in the Song of Songs. In the Song of Songs, again, a lot of themes we could go to. We're going to pick out just a few to take a look at this morning. But the Song of Songs is a collection of love songs. Uh, That title, Song of Songs, it really means greatest of all songs, the song. It's the greatest of all love songs. It's poetry. And like all poetry, it's meant to stir your mind, but not just your mind, right? It's not meant to just help you think about what's right to do. It's also meant to stir your emotions, to stir your imagination, to stir your desire. It's meant to cause you to kind of join this story like a good song does and imagine what could be and hope for what could be. That's the Song of Songs. And like any good song, there's a lot of repetition in it. It has themes that come back again and again and come to the surface. And again, long list of those. We could spend weeks on them. I want to talk about just three this morning. Again, maybe to start the conversation. First one I want to talk about is this theme of invitation. One of the things that's interesting in the Song of Songs is this was written in a time when men had incredible power related to women. Uh, A woman couldn't own property. She had no legal power. She had no political power. Um, Really, a woman was completely dependent upon a man for survival, either a father or brothers or a husband. Apart from them, it would be very, very difficult for a woman to survive. Yet what stands out in the Song of Songs, what I think is interesting, is even this man, you just don't find language of demand. You don't find pressure for her to move towards him or for her to submit to him from him. Yet he had incredible power over her. But when it comes to love, the exercise of power falls flat. Because if there's any place that choice matters, 
It's in this relationship of love, in romance. It's in this pursuit of oneness. Because if someone only chooses you because you put enough pressure on them that they chose you, if someone only chooses you because you hold something over them, even when they do choose you, you know it's not very satisfying because you don't feel really chosen. Uh, I'm counseling is my background, so what I do. I sit with couples many times that are going through hard times and struggles. And what I see so often in the couples I meet with is that they are trying to find a way to force the choice of the other to move towards them. They're trying to force the choice of the other because there's fear that if I invite you, you'll reject me. That if I ask you, I'll receive a no. So I try to find a way to, in a sense, minimize your choice so that you will move towards me, be with me in a way I long for. We will sometimes attack the things that they are choosing that, that we are jealous of, like jobs or hobbies or friends or family. We'll attack those things. If I attack those things, then you'll move towards me, right? Of course, the result is usually they start defending those things, and the person feels like they're moving further from me. Or, or I'll shame you in some way, or I'll, I'll give my list of why it is just required of you to do these things for me. But what I found again and again, when they bargain, when they shame, when they do any of these things that put pressure on the other to move towards them, that even when they receive what they've asked for, again, it falls flat. It's not what they really long for, because we long for someone to want to be with us and choose us when it comes to romance. And I think God paints that picture very strongly in the Song of Songs. This is a relationship where two people invite, they vulnerably invite, this is a relationship where two people pursue, but it's pretty hard to find demand, pretty hard to find pressure in this story. Listen to these words from the man in 2.14. Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. He invites her. Again and again, he will share his desire for her and his enjoyment of her inviting her to choose him too, as he chooses her. That's a scary place to be, right? Because when you vulnerably put your desires out there, boy, if you get a no then, if you get rejected, then it really hurts. I don't have the freedom of saying, well, you should have moved towards me. You know, you're wrong that you don't, but you didn't really hurt me because I don't care. But when you vulnerably put your desires and needs out there, boy, it hurts if they don't move towards you. I tell couples all the time, I wish I had another way to tell you to bring this oneness into your relationship that wasn't so risky, that didn't risk you being hurt. I just don't know anything that will. I don't know anything that has the kind of power that vulnerable invitation, expression of desire and longing and need has upon another person to help produce the relationship you long for. A second theme that I find pops up a lot in Song of Songs is that it is passionate and it's playful. In chapter 2, there's this interesting situation where the, where the woman says to the man, uh, tell me where you're going to be grazing the flocks this afternoon. I'd like to know where you're going to be because I'm going to come find you. I'm going to pursue you. And he seems to hesitate. He seems to almost tease her a little bit and not right away uh, tell her where he's going to be. And it's pretty clear she's not coming there because she wants to share a picnic lunch with him. 
Uh, she is looking for a romantic interlude here when she shows up, and she's being pretty bold in telling him that's what's going to happen. And again, he kind of maybe teases her a little bit, and then she tells him, you better tell me because I'm coming. People are going to think I'm a prostitute running around the hills looking for you, so you better tell me where you're going to be. You hear this passion and this playfulness from both of them. One thing that's interesting in Song of Songs, the woman's voice appears almost twice as much as the man's. And I'm told that is incredibly unusual in Hebrew literature, really any literature that day, especially romance uh, poetry. Usually it's the male voice. Here she is the dominant voice almost twice as much as the man. And I wonder if God's communicating, if there's any place where both of you have to be equally engaged, both of you have to be pursuers, inviters, both of you have to express desire and risk vulnerability. It's in romance and love and the pursuit of oneness. This is one place where it can't just be one of you. It has to be both of you. And he jumps right into the face of kind of what was expected in his culture, I think, to scream. And women, you've got to be pursuers too. That has to be true for this to be the relationship for you long, that you long for it to be. It's playful. Uh, when my wife, Lori, and I, we got married right out of high school, went to college right after we were married, and I went to school to be a youth pastor. And so I was in school learning how to be a youth pastor. And in one of my classes, they, uh, this class was about running activities for youth and events. And so this professor, what he required was he broke us all up into groups, and then every week for our class, we had to run an event like we would for a youth group. We had to plan it, set it up, and actually run it. And then the other students were our youth group. They would, they would have the part of playing the students in our youth group. The professor every week then would tell various students, here's things I want you to do, problems I want you to cause, because they're going to be graded on how they handle those problems. I was the only married student in that class, and so he asked me the first week, you think your wife would be willing to come over here and join you? I said, sure, she can do that. He said, because I want you guys to be the make-out couple. <laughs> I want you to be the couple that keeps trying to sneak off to make out that they have to deal with. That was the best assignment I have ever had in school in my entire life. And so that was our job. And week after week, Lori and I, we would be there. And we were the only ones who got the same assignment every week. So after a few weeks, everyone knew what our assignment was. So they would assign someone from their group just to watch us and follow us around. Every single week, we broke away from them and were able to go somewhere and make out. Uh, the last week, we were there, and it was kind of my grand finale, right? And so we're there at a park beside a big lake running this event. Laurie and I managed to sneak away, and we get on top of a wall that's on the other side of the lake where no one could miss seeing us. And we're making out on top of the wall across the lake. Uh, they got a bad grade that day uh, because of that. You know, I remember that story so well. One, because it's kind of funny, but I remember that story so well uh, because there was just this playfulness between Lori and I. It was fun. That's what play is, right? It's really just enjoying being with one another. It's enjoyment of each other. So often in relationship, it gets turned into serious, and there is serious in relationship. There always is. There's responsibility. There's serious. There's things we have to do that are hard. 
But sometimes it becomes all that, and that's all a relationship becomes about. Romance, love, intimacy, oneness, it flourishes sometimes where there's play, where everything isn't life and death, where there's passion, but passion that isn't always about a should, passion that's about just, I desire you and I enjoy you, and I want to be enjoyed by you. That's, that's fertile soil for romance and love and oneness to grow. Playfulness, I think it's important. Passion's important. I talk to couples often in counseling about the fact that it's easy to turn into what I call back-to-back relating. You know, you get in those places in life where there's just so much that pulls at your attention and your time. Uh, There's responsibilities, your kids, your job, your finances, involvement in church, all these things that pull at you, all those out there responsibilities that you're around each other a lot, you're close to each other, but you're always close to each other in a way that's looking out there, that's focused on out there. And on those rare occasions where you turn face to face, it's still so often what we're used to. It's face to face to solve out there. But romance, and you look at the song of songs, you see it again and again. They are face to face. They are face-to-face in a way that sees the other and knows the other and celebrates what they see, the beauty and the goodness and the strength in the other. They turn face-to-face, and they express out loud what they experience and see with each other. Again, necessary, I think, for this thing called oneness. Third, last one that I'm going to look at about marriage is being securely chosen, chosen and secure. Uh, for romance and intimacy to flourish. We need this realm of safety that comes with exclusivity. Uh, really only two relationships in the Bible that are said that, you, that are supposed to be exclusive, marriage and our relationship with God. They're, they're the only two. This is a different kind of relationship. It's exclusive. No one else gets to share in certain parts of it. It is just for you and one other. I love Song of Songs, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And and this is one I could pull out so many. I was tempted to have a long list. But they all kind of say what this one says. The woman says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Sounds like she's saying, I am so beautiful, right? I'm a beautiful rose. I'm a lily. But Sharon was a fertile plain in Palestine where many flowers grew. And that word rose literally is just flower. So she's saying, I'm a flower in a place where there's lots of flowers. I'm a lily of the valley where there's lots of lilies. I may be beautiful, but I'm just one among many. And then here's his great response. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. You're not a beauty. You are the beauty for me. You are the only one I look to to satisfy my longing for beauty. I look no place but to you a theme you will find again and again in Scripture about marriage. Choose the wife of your youth. Choose this person who is yours to be the one who satisfies those deepest longings relationally that you have for beauty, for strength, for, for this intimacy that only is to be found in your marriage. Come back there and choose again and again. And then she kind of gives back to him what he just gave her. She says, an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. What both assure the other of is, you are the only one in my life. 
I have other relationships and other relationships that matter, and marriage can't carry the weight of everything you need. It shouldn't. But there are things that I only turn to my spouse for. There are ways in which you are the only one. Those deepest longings that I long to be satisfied, I look nowhere but to you. And there is something about that that creates a sense of being chosen and safe. That again, oneness flourishes, intimacy flourishes, relational intimacy, emotional intimacy, and sexual intimacy flourishes in that kind of safe place. You know that when I was a kid, I used to sing this song, His Banner Over Me Is Love. Did any of you sing that? Yeah? What was it? His Banner Over Me Is Love was the song in the motions. Uh, we sang that, and the idea was that there's this umbrella of God's love over us all the time. That passage has nothing to do with that. Uh, that passage is from Song of Songs, and it's where she is simply saying, when I go to the banquet hall, which, which literally would be translated the wine hall, when I go to the place where there's partying, this public place where there's probably flirtation going on, when I go to that public place, you know what? Everyone knows who I go with. There is a banner over me. There is this thing that identifies who I am and who I'm with. And you know what it is? It's his love. He loves me so well, even in the public places, out loud before others. There is no question who I belong with. Look right after that passage, what follows? It's a very intimate interlude between them because that creates this, this longing for oneness. It's where long, oneness flourishes. Ultimately, throughout the Song of Songs, uh, we're reminded that sex is about being with someone else, being with someone who's not me, someone other. Um, someone who exists apart from me, someone who's a choosing being, a longing being, a unique person, but being with them in an intimate, close, oneness kind of way. It's not just about some personal experience. It's not about just momentary pleasure. It's about being with someone else and enjoying them as they enjoy me. That's what oneness is about. Anything less, I think, is a distortion of oneness. But you may be asking the question, well, what if I'm single? Uh, is sexuality wasted on me? Uh, I think sometimes we even talk as if someone who is single is just in the state of incompleteness. You know, that singleness is just the kind of waiting until you're married when life suddenly begins. Is it a state of incompleteness? Singleness happens for a lot of reasons. Sometimes it's voluntary, sometimes it's involuntary. Uh, sometimes it's permanent, and sometimes it's temporary. All of us have been single at some point in our life, right? It's part of all of our lives and our story. And many times, even for those who are married, singleness becomes a part of their story again, sometimes because of the loss of the spouse. Singleness is a part of all of our lives at some point. Is it incompleteness? Uh, and, and again, in the church, I think sometimes we, we act like it is, we send the signal it is in our words and our actions sometimes that there's something lesser, something not as complete and full in your life if you're single. But what about biblical examples like Paul and Jeremiah who set aside marriage to fully commit themselves to serving God and his people? And even more importantly than that, what about Jesus? Was Jesus' life incomplete? 
because he was not married. And Jesus tells us that when we get to heaven, the state of all of us will be unmarried. Is heaven an incomplete life? A less full and abundant life? Is that what it is? Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not trying to say that singleness doesn't come with struggles. I think it does. That there, isn't, there aren't things that are hard, especially in a world that seems to sometimes be built around marriage. I think there are struggles and difficulties that come with singleness. But I want to challenge this idea that somehow if you're single, you are condemned to a lesser life. Scripture sure doesn't teach that. Uh, one passage I want to look at this morning uh, is Matthew chapter 19. In, chapter Matthew, in Matthew chapter 19, the situation is once again, Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees. They're trying to trap him. And this time they're trying to trap him by talking about divorce. And Jesus responds by kind of going a different direction than they expected. Instead of trying to nail down the details on when you can get divorced and all, he raises the bar on marriage, raises it much higher than they expected. Jesus says this. He says, it's God who joins a man and woman together in marriage and makes them one. And then in verse 9, he says, whoever divorces his wife except for spiritual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Well, it was actually common practice in Israel at that time that a man could divorce his wife for just a large variety of reasons. Men were the only ones that had that power, but they could divorce their wives for many reasons if they chose to. And Jesus says, no, that's not God's real design for marriage. That's not what God longs for. Matter of fact, the only time he says it's okay is when someone else has already broken the covenant of marriage. It's no one is ever allowed to break the covenant of marriage, but if someone else already has through adultery, he says you're free. You could be free if you chose to at that point, but not because you would break the covenant of marriage. Never is that a right thing to choose to do. And again, this is really raising the bar on what they expected, and his disciples seem to be shocked. Even his own disciples seem to be saying, whoa, are you saying marriage is that permanent forever? You're saying if I get married, I got to be with this woman forever, no matter what? His disciples said to him, if such is the case, a man with his wife is better not to marry. And I wonder if they're not kind of poking at Jesus. Come on, you can't really mean that. Let's lower it a little bit. That's just too much. I don't know what's going to come, what the future holds. That permanent? And Jesus' answer again seems to, to go a direction they didn't expect. Instead of lowering the bar, Jesus answers their question by saying, you know, it's better not to marry. And he answers the question in a sense saying, sometimes, sometimes it is better not to marry. And he uses this unusual example. He said to them, not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs, and a eunuch was a person because of either congenital issues or sometimes because of an, another person altering their body, were people who could not reproduce, could not have sexual relations. And he's saying these eunuchs, these people physically is what they would have thought of when they thought of eunuchs. He says that there are eunuchs that have, who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, receive this, receive it. And I think Jesus is doing as he's done elsewhere in the New Testament. 
He picks a group of people that they tended to treat as a lesser group and treat with contempt and denigrate, and that was clearly eunuchs. Uh, Jews, Greeks, Romans of that time all treated eunuchs with great contempt. They were in many ways a hated and looked down upon group. And he takes that group and he holds them up and he says, now look at that group. And he describes three types of eunuchs. Those again who physically from birth that are eunuchs. Those who have been made eunuchs by men and because it was common that uh, men would be made eunuchs, physically altered to be made eunuchs, so they could serve in the royal courts with women so that the king didn't have to feel threatened by them as they served in the royal courts. And then he says these eunuchs who were made eunuchs themselves, and I don't think here he's saying they physically altered their bodies. I think he's simply saying here, metaphorically, these people who chose not to be married, to be sexually abstinent, these people who in some ways chose to be eunuchs, He's saying, they chose to do so to, to be free to serve in the kingdom of God. Here's what would be, I think, surprising in what Jesus said. In this time when these, this group of people would be so condemned and turned away from, Jesus doesn't talk about them in any way that shows contempt. He just describes their situation, says there's some that are born into this, there's some have been made this, not by their choice, it's just involuntary. And there's some who've chosen this life. And they've chosen this life for a very good purpose. And what would have been incredibly surprising to his Jewish listeners was, you're actually saying sometimes singleness is a best choice. Now maybe it's a necessary choice sometime or one that you're stuck in, but you're actually saying that sometimes this is actually a best choice. Now you won't find in scripture that somehow singleness is this higher spiritual state or spiritual commitment. But you will find here, you'll find later in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul saying, saying the same. Sometimes it's actually a very good and best choice. And Paul will even add to it, sometimes just because of the difficult situation in your culture right now, singleness may be the best choice. Sometimes the best choice. A flying in the face of a culture that said, no, if you're not married, there's something wrong. If you're not married, you have an incomplete life and your life is coming up short. That is not what Jesus is saying to them. He calls them to live in whatever place they are, as he calls all of us, but to live in it fully. You may want to change it. You may pray to, if you're single, pray to be married. You may pray to be out of that and long to be. Nothing wrong with that. But he's saying, whatever state you're in, don't live as if somehow you're just in waiting for life. Life is available to you right now, wherever you are. Matter of fact, singleness can even be a best choice for you. What's clear from Scripture, though, is that singleness is never meant to be a choice of aloneness. Aloneness is absolutely never God's design for us. Another place in Scripture other than marriage where this language of oneness is used is when Scripture talks about Christ's church, that we are to be one, that he is one with his church, his body, This is a place of oneness, too, that all of us are invited to and a gift that all of us are given because none of us are ever meant to live in aloneness. That is not a biblical state for any of us. Barry Danlack, in his book Redeeming Singleness, writes, the excessive value the Western world has placed on individualism 
fosters a psychological tendency to associate singleness with living alone. This is a tendency the church should resist. Christian singleness is not a denial of the underlying principle of Genesis 2.18, that it is not good to be alone. Neither Jesus nor Paul as single men was devoid of relationships. On the contrary, their relationships flourished in both number and depth by the freedom and flexibility their singleness afforded them. As a church, I just think we have to be careful. We have to be careful we don't always talk to people who are single as if somehow they're just in this lesser place and waiting for real life to begin. Always asking, well, who are you dating? Who are you going to marry? What's going on? To understand, no, let's embrace people where they are. Let's also not create a culture where you have to be married to be apart. Because if I am single, the option for oneness for me, first and foremost, is the church. So what a horrible thing if we push them out and make this unavailable because you really have to be married to be apart. As a church, let's make sure that we don't treat singleness in a way different than Jesus did, as if it's life on hold. Matter of fact, don't you think all of us have a tendency um, to live as if life is going to begin when fill in the blank? Real life will happen when I get a different career. Real life will happen when I become pregnant. Real life will happen when my children start moving in a different direction. Real life will happen when I retire. Real life will happen when finances change. Real life will happen when, and on and on and on the list could go, right? That real life will only happen if that thing comes to fruition. Real life will happen if I get married. And again, in all those cases, those may be wonderful, good things. There's nothing wrong with longing for them, praying for them, hoping for them. But if there's anything Scripture teaches us, is it because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us? Because our relationship with him, he has made available to us a full and abundant life. We're not waiting on life. Life is available to us. Not when this blank gets filled. Life is available to us in him and through him. As theologians often say, there's kind of this now and not yet about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come and it is coming will come in full and completeness when Jesus comes again. Right now, we still live in a world where there is struggle and longing and difficulty. All those things are true. But abundant life is available to us. And if there's anything that Scripture pushes again and again, whatever state you're in, whatever your situation, search for, embrace, live into the abundant life that is yours in Jesus Christ. Live in oneness, the gift he has provided you because he does not want you to be alone. Oneness in your marriage, pursue it. Live into it, embrace it. Oneness as a church, live into it, pursue it, embrace it. Because we are absolutely not meant to be alone because we have a God who is with us. What a, what a blessing that is. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful. I am thankful for the fact that you have created us we are. Father, I'm thankful for the way you've, you've made us, even our bodies. And Father, I'm, I pray that for all of us that we would find, out, find those ways that we can live out well, live out fully 
uh, who you mean us to be. In this world where sometimes it comes with difficulty and struggle and hardship, we pray, Father, that we um, wouldn't live it alone. We pray that we would live it uh, in communion with others, intimately bound together with others uh, because of the good gifts you've given us, uh, embracing the relationship that's always available to us with you. We thank you that you're a good God who's given us such good gifts. In your blessed name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.